God, thank you for returning us again to worship you as your people gathered. We thank you that in Jesus Christ you have drawn us near to be your redeemed people, uh, to be cleansed and forgiven and adopted as sons, to receive all of the inheritance with Christ that he has is, he is won for us in his saving death. We thank you that part of this inheritance is your spirit who indwells us and brings your very life into us to enjoy as a foretaste of heaven. And part of that is just knowing who you are as our God and what you've done and what you continue to do. And so we pray that today as we study your Holy Spirit in connection with the divine work of revealing yourself, we pray that you grant us clarity of mind and humility of heart and give me um, clarity in my speech to help unfold these things in a way that is truly helpful, equipping us to know you better, to live for you, and to treasure your word in particular this morning uh, based on what we're looking at. May we lift high the, the name of Jesus. May we love the word of Christ and, and cherish it in every aspect of our lives. And uh, we pray all this in your spirit's blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome back. Whoa, it's like the class doubled while I prayed. <laughs> Let's pray more. <laughs> um, uh, welcome back to our uh, Equipping Hour series on the Holy Spirit. And today we are talking about the topic of the Holy Spirit and Revelation. Um, we have talked about the Holy Spirit as the Lord, the divine person who's a part of the Trinity. Uh, we've talked about how all the divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, share in the divine works so that everything God does, the whole Trinity is doing, yet each uh, person of the Trinity is, is uh, taking, we could say, a different role or has kind of a different mode of, of activity within that divine work. Uh, we've looked at how that looks in particular with the works of creation and providence last week. How God made everything, that, uh, in, made the world, made nature, and how he continues to sustain and govern it. Today we're going to talk about the divine work of revelation. We're not talking about the book of revelation at the end of the Bible. We mean the divine work of God revealing himself, especially in the words of scripture. And to remind you, the title of the course is the Lord and life giver, which echoes the language from the Nicene Creed about the Holy Spirit. And that language echoes language from scripture. And uh, does it, you know, this is a real bonus, like, like deep cut here. So I don't, it's fine if no one remembers this. But does anyone remember where in scripture that the giver of life comes from? The most direct place we, said, we saw that scripture, that, that that creed is taking the language, the giver of life about the Holy Spirit. I'll even quote that it is the spirit who gives life. Do you remember where that is? John six sixty three. Jason, wow, that's very true. Is that in the? Is that in the hand? Okay. Did, is that how you knew? <laughs> Cheater. No, that's he's resourceful. John six sixty three. What's interesting is Jesus is talking about his own words. He's been preaching about himself, and he's been offending people by talking about drinking his flesh and drinking his blood and eating his flesh. And so when people are challenged by that, he says, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's a deep statement. And we're not going to exhaust or, or even take a, a deep study of that verse today. But right away, you can see there's a profound connection between Jesus' words, the giving of life, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the spirit is the life giver. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Um, there is a connection. If the spirit is the life giver, we could ask this question to kind of launch us today. If the Holy Spirit is the life giver, 
how does he relate to God's words? How does his life giving relate to the, the revelation, the words of God? That's what we're exploring today in a nutshell. So any questions or comments before we start looking at these things? All right, let's look first of all at uh, Revelation as God's active covenantal presence. So the first thing we need to understand really before we start talking about the Holy Spirit in particular is what God's revelation even is. Um, Now, we all have exposure to the Bible, so we've all experienced God's revelation, but we may not have thought too much or know too much about what is going on here in God giving us a book. Um, What does it mean for the Lord to speak? Well, we're going to ask and answer three questions to kind of unfold this. The first is just the question of what is revelation? What does it mean for God to reveal? Well, revelation is God's self-disclosure through nature and speech. It's really God choosing to share the knowledge of himself to his creatures. It's not us figuring out something about God. It's God sharing the knowledge of himself. God taking the initiative to reveal himself. Now, he does it. What's it called? Do we call it theologically? Does anyone know? The way he's revealed himself in nature. General General revelation. Exactly. So that's, everyone is, uh, has access to that, just in the things that have been made. I'm, I'm kind of echoing Romans 1, right, in, in creation. There is a generally accessible knowledge of God. That's general revelation. Um, but the Bible focuses more attention on special revelation, which is his revelation through words. Okay? And that's what we're going to focus on today, is his special revelation through words. And he is, particularly, he's seen fit to use special revelation He hasn't just randomly spoken things about himself. He has spoken to draw near to a people in covenant to save his people. That's like what the Bible, the whole Bible is doing that. It's God drawing near to a people to save through his covenant, specifically through the gospel of Christ, through the knowledge of his saving son. So um, given that he reveals himself through words, let's let's go in a little deeper on what, what what is scripture? What are these words? Okay, what is scripture? It is the written down word of God. That's the second question. What is scripture? It is God's speech written. See, throughout history, God revealed himself, and I'm kind of echoing the beginning of Hebrews 1, and many times in many ways, right? He revealed himself to various people throughout the Bible's storyline. Um, let me ask you this. Were there ever any, did God ever reveal himself? Did he ever give words that are not in the Bible? I see some heads nodding. How do you know that? How do we? What makes us think that? The uh, the, the end of John, uh, where the Jesus did, but we can tell a lot more That's right. So at the end of John, he says, "I'm just giving you a sampling of all Jesus said, enough to induce belief. Essentially, you can have eternal life." Yeah, that's a good point. It's explicit there. There's much more. Old Testament. You know, there's a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. If you read the narratives of the Old Testament, there are many prophets going around and prophesying that we don't have books written by. In fact, the two, if you look at the narrative of the Old Testament, the two greatest prophets you would, you would conclude, after Moses, you could say he's kind of a prophet, would be Elijah and Elisha. Where are the books of Elijah and Elisha in our Old Testament, right? They didn't write books. But in their time, in kind of time-limited ways, they were very powerful spokesmen for God. They were speaking for God as prophets. But... Some of the words that God's prophets spoke, some of the words he gave his people, God providentially ordained to be put into writing for the sake of permanence. So not every word God has revealed is written in scripture, but the words that are needed for his purpose 
for which he's given us the Bible, that was put into Scripture. Isaiah 30, verse 8 is interesting. It's a little note on the purpose of inscripturation, writing God's word. He says, And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So there's this idea that what's written down is a witness forever. There's something, uh, there's a permanent use God has for certain words that he's revealed, and those get written in scripture. Um, And so, now some have tried to argue that like, oh, okay, so God revealed himself in history through these acts of, you know, like the Exodus and the Red Sea and and through prophets and these things. He revealed himself that way, and then men, fallen, you know, limited, sinful men, just wrote that down, and that's the Bible. The Bible is just man's record of God revealing himself in the past. Is that an adequate thing to say about scripture? It's simply a record of past revelation. No? It's God breathed. So yeah, so yeah, that's very good. So there's something about the words of scripture themselves that is God, God, that's God's revelation in itself. So it's not just that God revealed himself through actions and then people wrote it down and then we have that writing. It's that God is revealing himself in the writings themselves. Does that distinction make sense? As one, to put it really briefly, as one theologian has put it, when scripture speaks, God speaks. The scripture is actually God talking. We'll we'll look a little bit more into what that means. But does that distinction make any sense to you? I I don't want to be uh, unclear here. It's not just that he spoke in history and then someone jotted it down and so we have it. It's, it's that, but also that writing is his speech. He is still speaking through that writing. Uh, Christina, do you have a question? Yeah, I th- yeah, that's good. In First Corinthians seven, this is not from the Lord from me. I think that what he's doing there is not he's not turning on and off inspiration. I think he's referring to prior traditions from Jesus that the church would have been aware of. So he's saying, like, the Lord Jesus said this. You remember, like, there are certain teachings that were floating around in the church. And so he's either referring to prior traditions directly from the mouth of Jesus or his own apostolic teaching, which is no less authoritative, but is a different, a different source in that sense. Does that make, does that make sense? So it's not uh, just, me, just me, Paul, my own opinion versus what God says. It's the Lord Jesus in his teaching on marriage during his earthly life versus me, the inspired apostle, teasing these things out. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, Jinwei. Practical. So we know that there's like maybe some scribal errors and things. Mm -hmm. Are we saying that in its original form, what God's speaking, like whatever there is, these textual errors, like numbers, some of the numbers. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe like a part of the mark that where it says, this was not in the earliest manuscripts. Like, do we still say that about scripture? That's still God speaking. Yeah, is you know, is does that only apply to the original manuscripts um, that he still speaking? I would not say that his, that to say scripture is God speaking only applies to original manuscripts. There are some transmission errors, and that's a whole. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. It's a whole other thing about how scripture has been transmitted and errors in manuscripts and how we've kind of re re piece together what, the, you know, likely the original said. But um, what I would say is what's been preserved is, is so substantially true to the original autographs, the original copies, that the, the, that being God's speech isn't compromised by that. Like the, it's still God speaking. There are little, there are little 
things that we may be uncertain about that are on a very minor level, um, but none of that compromises substantially. This is God speaking. The scripture is meant to be taken that way. Um, and yeah, it's a good, good thing you bring up. Um, so for, for scripture to speak and for God to speak, is, it's interchangeable. Um, one thing that's interesting, Psalm, can someone read Psalm? Someone turn to Psalm 95. And be ready to read verses 7 to 8. Can someone do that, please? And then uh, someone else. Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 8. And actually, why don't we all go park at Hebrews 3? Um, we're going to look at something real quick there. So can I have a volunteer for Psalm 95? Uh, Matt Boyd for Psalm 95. And then Stacy, would you get uh, Hebrews 3, 7 to 8, please? Psalm 95, 7 to 8? Yep. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Okay. So the psalm says that. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, scripture is saying that. But let's see what the author of Hebrews does with that in Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of, the test, um, the day of testing in the wilderness. So what, what has the author of Hebrews done? What assumption has he made? The Holy Spirit says, and, and what is the Holy Spirit saying? Yeah, he's saying he's, the quote that he puts in the mouth of the Holy Spirit is scripture. It's just part of the psalm. And uh, he doesn't say, as the Bible says, which is true. He doesn't say, as the psalmist, the human psalmist says, which is true. But he does say, as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit is saying this. Um, when scripture speaks, God speaks. That's a, a, a picture of what that means. But it's even interesting to go on in his argument. He's arguing, he's expositing from Psalm 95. Today, this idea, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He's calling, today is the day of salvation. And if you look a little bit further on in chapter 4 of Hebrews, verses 4 and 5, um, for he has somewhere spoken um, of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. And again, this passage, he said... They shall not enter my rest. So he, he keeps saying, they, they, he basically saying, he keeps saying this. And in verse 7, he appoints again, oh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long ago in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Um, so he just has this running kind of explanation and commentary, but he's pointing out, he's saying this, the Holy Spirit is saying this. Um, so yeah, not everything God ever revealed was inscripturated permanently. It wasn't meant to be permanent, but everything in scripture is simply God's speech. We don't say God said it and then somebody wrote it down. It's somebody's record of God's speech. It's more than that. It's God's speech. There's no gap between those two. Now, someone may be wondering, wait a minute, wouldn't it be more accurate to say what Scripture has spoken? God has spoken. Um, so I said when Scripture speaks, God speaks. That's a present tense. But someone would say, well, this is in the past. This was written down a long time ago. Why don't we say what Scripture has spoken, God has spoken? What do you guys, what do you all think about that? 
You're not all guys. <laughs> Men, women, and children. What do you think about that? Kind of and, it in the past tense. Uh huh. It is past. Yeah. Have spoken. Have spoken. Is it? Uh, is it? Not, now, not currently speaking. Yeah. So, so in the past tense implies he's not currently speaking. Annalie, did you have a thought? It's not bound by time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So he's active and he's not. He's eternal. So that's an important thing too. He's not bound by time. Yeah. Yeah. Didi. God's word is living. Yeah. Makes it sound like yeah. It's alive right now. It's living and active. Correct. It's a great. Uh, oh, John. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say. I was trying to find that verse. It's uh, Hebrews four. Yeah. Twelve. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're all hitting exactly around like artillery. You're just all landing right around where we need to go. Um, Didi said, the scripture lives. And John said, yes, that's Hebrews 4.12. Well, the next point um, is, how does scripture live? How is that? Well, the Holy Spirit is still speaking. That's how scripture lives. The Holy Spirit still speaks. So a lot of us are aware of Hebrews 4.12, but it's interesting that we've, we've kind of gone all the way back to Hebrews 3.7, and we've seen this quote of scripture Calling Psalm 95 divine speech. The Holy Spirit says. Do you notice the present tense? The Holy Spirit says this. And then he quotes a hundreds year old text at, at that time. Um, and then, and then uh, so he's saying that like back in verses 6 and 7. Since it re- therefore remains for some to enter it. Sorry, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Um, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Just listen for the time markers of, of verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. The Holy Spirit is saying today, through is saying through David so long afterward, after that psalm was written, in the words already quoted, he is saying now today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So there's, it's very interesting that he's taking up the psalm and saying, this was written a long time ago. The Spirit is saying this through the text that David wrote. And that is, if you may notice, that's only five verses before the famous proof text of all proof texts on the living and active word of God, which is Hebrews 4.12. That John mentioned just a few verses later, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We may, a lot of us are familiar with Hebrews 4.12 and may not have thought about the, the, the context that leads to it where he is, he's pressing on his hearers in a sermonic uh, form, pressing on his hearers. That text is not a dead letter. The spirit is saying that today. Because scripture lives and is active. That's what it means for scripture to be living and active. What it means is this, the Holy Spirit is still saying this right now. So we may think of scripture being living and active in a depersonalized way. It's simply a property of the words themselves. But it would be better to think of it as it's a function of the words being the speech, the ongoing speech of the person of the Holy Spirit. Does that, does that make sense? Any questions about, about that, that point we're making here out of Hebrews? 
when author writes, God's speech in scripture cannot be confined to the written text alone since it reverberates onward through the Holy Spirit. Um, and what that means is, in this context, what he means is the Holy Spirit is speaking. It's not just something that's on the page. It is on the page, but the Spirit is saying it to us through that. Um, now, the living, of, the, the living nature of God's word, like any divine kind of thing we're looking at, it's, it's mysterious, right? We're talking about how does the Holy Spirit speak? There's going to be mystery here. But one thing that may help us understand how this is possible is to think of speech uh, we, we, we tend to think of speech maybe as, as a bucket that contains meaning. It's just like a, a, a reservoir that has meaning. It just sits there statically, and we just go and look at it, and, oh, that's what's in there. But uh, it may be better to think of language as an instrument that does a job, like an arm that does work. Um, that the idea is that, that all speech is doing something. All, to speak is to, is to do an action. Um, sometimes we are merely proposing Something saying X is true. We're proposing. We're, we're, we're stating. But a lot of times we're doing other things with our words. So we might do things. This is not an exhaustive list. But we might, in our speaking, we might be appealing. We might be assuring. We might be challenging. We might be comforting, encouraging, frightening, informing, inquiring, inspiring, preparing, recommending, warning, wooing. Do you see what I mean? These are the things that our speech does when we speak. It's not simply a container of meaning. It does contain meaning, but it's doing something. And there's always a... So when God speaks, his words have a, a purpose. There is an intention that they're meant to fulfill. Does anyone... Can anyone think of any scripture texts that talk about the purpose for which God's word was sent? Any, any thoughts? Any alarms firing in your head? The word of God accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent? listening is that his scripture says that he's building his church his yes. life, which is eternal yeah and his word being alive yeah is for us who are temporal each generation that comes on yes. still doing that work to build the eternal church for, to prepare yeah. the so part of yeah part of uh, a big picture thing the word of god is doing is building the church that's absolutely true and that plays out in a ton of different ways more concretely and fine scale but that's a really good point the, the Christ is building his church and he's using his words to do so. Yeah, Wilson. Yeah, 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 55. Would you read 10 and 11? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to put you on the spot there, but yeah, you're, you're totally right. For if the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the God's word goes out, and it doesn't return empty. It accomplishes the purpose for which I sent. So God's words are sent out for a purpose, to do a thing. And so one thing, just a practical takeaway from that is, as we read scripture, this could really help bring alive the sense of um, our response to scripture. And uh, if we think of scripture merely as telling us things, and then sometimes commanding things, we might go, okay, well, I'll just read it and I'll try to pay attention and I'll try to do the things it says. Understanding this can really help bring a lot more facets to the idea of how do we respond obediently to Scripture? Meaning, if Scripture is trying, to, if a given text is Scripture is, is trying to warn me, then I respond obediently by heeding, right? Like, I, I be warned. That's how I respond to that text, obediently. 
If scripture is trying to assure me, how do I respond obediently to that text? Yeah, Rodney. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's some uh, there's some uh, interpretation necessary and, and yeah. government because in, I mean in the Old Testament there's some picking and choosing is what I was thinking right because yeah Paul's using this example here from Psalms but there's other things in the Old Testament that we would say are superseded by the events in the New Testament mm-hmm. so they're no they're no longer like the way we operate with God or the way God interacts with us or, right that's a good Yeah. Because it's really the message of the whole Bible that that is truth and what the Holy Spirit is saying. Yeah. And then what you're talking about now is, is sometimes it's encouragement, sometimes it's reproof, sometimes it's instruction, and, and we have to decide which is which. Yeah, you're right. And so you're saying is it's not always so straightforward that we just read the text and go, like, say, if he's talking to Old Testament Israel, we don't just say, oh, that's put myself in their shoes and exactly what God is meaning to do with his word in their life, that's exactly what he's meaning to do in my life. You're right. This is assuming a lot about interpretation and, and especially interpreting the text through the lens of kind of the big picture of where the story's going in Christ. So I would say, yeah, I would still say it's still God speaking to us, but there's some indirectness with regard to um, how directly we put ourselves into the, like, make ourselves the characters of the original text, if that makes sense. So we, you know, there are some Old Testament laws that we know because of what the New Testament has done with them that they don't apply in the New Covenant in the same way. But I still, there's still something to be gained from it. And there's something God's doing. There's something God is meaning to do in us and, and on us through that text. And so I would just say, we, it may not be always as straightforward, but there's always something God is meaning to do through his word, whatever text we read. Would you say that's fair? Yes, scripture, you can't the whole Bible. Paul just lifts the line out of Psalms here and says, this is God speaking today. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that necessarily with everything in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, right? <laughs> it depends on the kind of the, the meaning and the context of the whole Bible. Right, right. Yes, you, you, sometimes the line is a little bit less directive. Grab a line and say, God says this to you right now. Yes, that, that's very true. You have to interpret it and apply it consistent with where the whole Bible is going. Absolutely. Yeah, Randy, do you have a... Consistently is not putting yourself in scripture, but it, it reveals the character of God. Yeah. Consistent. And also reveals the character of man, which also is consistent. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some, you know, and sometimes what the text is meaning to do is inform us. You know, I mean, that's still, we still get truth. So who is our God? You know, sometimes the scripture is meaning to inform our knowledge of God and of ourselves for the purpose, you know, and, and so yes, that's very true. So, um, so yeah, it's not always as direct that we just read scripture and apply it dire- a direct application to ourselves without some thought about where we stand in relation to the old covenant and the new covenant, things like that. But still, the scripture is God's speech. We just have to be kind of careful about how we interpret and apply it. It's still the active, living and active word of God such that, um, you know, to, to, this is something else you see in scripture that to disobey, this might seem pedantic and ridiculous, but I mean, it is not actually... To disobey God's command 
is no different than disobeying God. So if you, if you really want to get specific, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, 15 and 17, God commanded them, don't eat from this tree. And they disobeyed God's command. Is that any different than disobeying God himself? Well, no, it would be silly to try to argue like, oh, they didn't disobey God. They disobeyed his word, you know. But so that, I mean, that's how closely that God and his speech can be identified, that to respond to the speech of God, the words of God, is responding to God himself. It's the same thing. Like, that's how he acts toward us, is by speaking. Um, so that's what it means for God to speak. That's kind of some sense of why the Spirit is, how the Spirit is still speaking and working through Scripture. So does that, uh, may have raised more questions than an answer, I don't know. Any thoughts, or, I, I have appreciated the engagement and questions we've gotten. Any other thoughts or questions about that? Yeah, Rhonda. If you were teaching your teenager to draw, you can give them the DMV booklet and let them study it memorize all the rules and uh-huh. the warnings. But when you get in the car and you teach them to drive, you're expanding on that and why these things matter so much yeah. to help them develop discernment and day-to-day workings of life is bringing it out and applying in our souls. So that's a, yeah, like, it's a really good illustration of, you know the rules on paper, but then your teenage driver, your parents next to you, helping make sure you <laughs> remember the rules at the right time, and they're having their entire intended effect uh, on you. Yeah, was someone else? Stacey, yeah. I was going to say, um, I think one of the things that uh, I've noticed we all know after reading scripture in that it is living and active is that reading the same passage will mean different things at different times. Sometimes mm-hmm. it will be more applicable mm-hmm. um, directly, and yeah. sometimes it will be more of an overall lesson. Yeah. Sometimes it's just an encouragement that you're not the only one that's screwed up, and here's yeah. a whole book of lots of screw-ups. <laughs> right, right. The plan. So it really is... Um, I mean, it's just more proof that it's living in action. Yeah, and there are a lot of different things a given text could do. So I want to be, that's, that's, that's good too. It's not like, there's some, there's some interesting indirect benefit we can get. For, even if there's a warning in scripture, we could find that encouraging. You know, it's not wrong to respond that way as well. Uh, so yeah, and, and in, in all the different states of life we're in, the spirit speaking that word in a living way will do diff- very different things at different times. Um, sometimes you're in the depth of despair and you're, you read a lament psalm and you're like, yes, yes, this is me. And sometimes you're doing really well and you read a lament song and you're like, it's, it's, it doesn't hit the same, but it's still helpful, isn't it? Like you still, it's still like a worldview formation of going, oh, this is, remember, this is how God views the suffering. And this is, you know, this is, it's like, this is training for what I am suffering and all that. So, yeah, Jason, we're going to say something. No, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you kind of hammering this point home because, you know, because the Bible is in written form and because we can, you know, you read 15 commentaries, you talk about it, you study, you debate it, like you can lose that, that automatic connection between mm-hmm. it and God and mm-hmm. rightly interpreted and applied as you're reading the scripture it is no different than if God were standing next to you speaking to you like, mm-hmm. there's no right. difference between those things yeah it is it is it's it is God yeah exactly it's we think of a person talking to us as very lively and active and scripture is no different it's not a dead letter he just wrote down the spirit is and there's mystery here but the spirit and the word are totally inseparable in, 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 
their operation. Right. But <laughs> um, yeah, good, good word. Let's move on. Uh, sorry for the sake of time. I will have to move on, but um, if you have other questions or things you want to ask later, I'm glad to interact. But let's consider Revelation as a Trinitarian action. So we've talked about the um, what we've called inseparable operations, big word for uh, the external works of the Trinity are undivided, right? Again, everything God does, Father, Son, and Spirit are all doing. And so when... Um, when the scripture says, the Holy Spirit says and quotes the Bible, we should be fine with that. Okay. Does that mean that the Father and the Son aren't speaking in Psalm 95? No. Okay. We, we know enough by now to know that by isolating the Holy Spirit, we're not claiming the Father and the Son were not revealing that, those words. Um, and to really, one place that's really interesting where you see the interchangeability of the divine persons in giving speech is uh, Revelation 2.7. Um, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know this early part of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. There's these seven messages to seven churches, and they're all punctuated by this. Who has an, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every message to the church has one of these. Who is saying this? Jesus. If you read Revelation at the in chapter one, if you you've traced through that what's going on, John is having a vision, and the risen, glorious Christ appears to him in a vision and starts talking to him, and he says, "Give these messages to the churches." And as he gives the messages to John for the churches, he says, "Listen to what the Spirit is saying." It's really fascinating the way that Jesus calls his word the, what the Spirit is saying, and I would also draw your attention again to the present tense. It's not John, you tell the church what I said. It's John, you tell the church what the Spirit is saying to the church, the churches. Um, and so there is this kind of interchangeability between the divine person speaking. Um, and we can, we, can better, we can better understand how that works uh, in a moment. But, you know, we talked about certain uh, divine works that they, they shared. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are doing them all. But there is a sense in which each, each one has their own kind of role or their own mode of action. What is the Holy Spirit's um, MO, we could say? What is the, in all the divine works, what's the Holy Spirit's part in those? Part isn't a great word, but what's he doing in all the divine works? Moving? We talked about, I think it was week one, we talked about, or two, week two, I think. Does anyone remember? It's not, not moving. What? Illumination. Illumination is one. A thing that he does, but there's like a big master banner over all of it. It's in the title of the course. <laughs> life-giving and perfecting, right? He's the perfecting, life-giving, com- like the completing of all the divine works. Um, in because the 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 Trinity, the 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 Son, eternally begotten of the Father, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. And so, so there's this chain, this um, this extension, and the Spirit is the kind of the the completer, the perfecter of all that God does. And so it is with Revelation. And so what that means is um, Revelation kind of, we could say, terminates or or finishes with the Holy Spirit. So there's a sense in which he's the divine person most uh, closely related to the work of inspiration. That doesn't mean the words are his more than they are the Father's and the Son's, but it just means he's a divine person for whom it's maybe most proper to say he's inspiring the text, if if that makes sense. So, first of all, let's, let's look at what that means with regard to the Godhead. 
He is, we're going to say, the breath that carries divine speech. Uh, one of the classic texts on the inspiration or, of Scripture is 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is the classic text on inspiration. Scripture is God-breathed, and, uh, and that's what inspiration means. And some have said, actually, it could be called the doctrine of expiration because it's the breathed-outness of Scripture. It's not as though God, we say inspired, we think of like maybe God zapped the human authors with this bolt of inspiration, and they had all these holy feelings and thoughts, and then they were, i got to write this down, and then they wrote it down. It's actually what it's claiming is, is much more than that, that the words they wrote were mysteriously at the same time that the human authors are writing what they write. God is mysteriously breathing those same words out through the mind and will of the human authors um, by the sovereign agency of God himself. So is it man's word? Yes. Is it God's word? Yes. At the same time, it's the exact same process. God's sovereignly working through the human being as he writes, as he, as he, as he speaks, um, well, specifically in, in, in writing scripture. Um, but we've also, we've seen previously how spirit, the word spirit is, there's some, um, it can also mean breath or wind. And a lot of the biblical imagery for the spirit draws on this kind of metaphorical overlap between spirit, breath, wind. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's no accident here. There's some evocative, um, metaphor here in saying that this, the word is breathed out. It's a breath of God. So the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in second Timothy three sixteen. But given the biblical pattern of the spirit, breath, wind, kind of this, this metaphorical overlap, to say God is breathing out scripture is big time implying the Holy Spirit is the, the person who carries that speech. Um, and, and, and that's not just a speculation, because again, we have texts like Hebrews 3, 7 saying the Holy Spirit says, like inspiration is more... Uh, directly tied to the Holy Spirit than to the other persons usually in the Bible. Um, and so, does that make sense what I'm saying? So, so God is speaking, but he's, it, he's breathing. To speak these words is his breath. And so we go, oh, that, there's a sense in which the Spirit is carrying those words as the breath of God, the, the, the one who completes the giving of those words. Um, in the Gospel of John, there's some more... Uh, there's some more we, uh, insight we get into this Trinitarian dynamic. Jesus says in John 8, 28, um, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So Jesus is saying, my words... Remember, the Father begets the Son in eternity. The Son proceed, proceeds from the Father in eternity. And so what he's saying is, because, I, because I'm eternally... have my origin in the Father, then the incarnate Jesus speaks words that come from the Father. There's this origination that reflects the eternal um, order. So he's saying, I speak from the Father. So the Father is the originator of the words. They come to the Son. The Son speaks them. But then John 16, 12 to 15, the upper room, Jesus is talking to his disciples before the cross. And he says, um, would someone read John 16, verses 12 to 15? Uh, Jason, yeah. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thank you. This is, there's a lot going on in this text, but um, 
So a few things to draw out is, first of all, Jesus has more to say to his disciples, more than he can say in his earthly ministry or at this moment in the upper room. And so he says, the spirit of truth will guide you into this truth that I mean to say to you. And uh, he will do so by taking, Jesus says, by taking my words and declaring them to you. He'll, he'll be the one who takes my words and gives them to you. But then he even backs it up toward the end and says, all that the Father has is mine. So that's our echoing of what he said back in 828, that I speak the words taught to me by the Father. So he's saying the words that came from the Father to me, I give to you by means of the spirit of truth. He'll deliver my words, which ultimately came from the Father. So um, that's why we can say in one sense, the spirit in, in, in inspiration, we can say the spirit says. But we also have to say in saying that we're not merely claiming something about the Holy Spirit. We're saying the spirit says as sort of the, termin, the terminus, the end point of this whole Trinitarian action of communicating. That begins in the Father and goes through the Son and finally through the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the clearest places that the New Testament itself anticipates the writing of the New Testament. So, um, you know, we may think of, oh, this is, this is John, this is the fourth book. But, um, you know, all the New Testament was written decades after this, these events. So Jesus is saying this to his disciples and saying, there's more truth coming. <laughs> the Spirit that I give you will lead you into that. And so then we have inspired books written in the New Testament, the, the Gospels, the Epistles, and Revelation. Um, so that's, uh, the, the Bible, as one author says, the Bible is Trinitarian communication. It's not just the Spirit speaking. But in one sense, it is the Spirit inspiring these words. So any, any questions? I know this stuff's pretty, this is pretty thick. Yeah, Rhonda. The letters, when Paul and others were writing, they were writing those down, mm-hmm. and then they, you know, sent them. But the gospels were written, like you were just saying, after the fact. Yeah. They weren't scribed, you know, they didn't have a secretary writing everything down as these things were unfolding mm-hmm. for years. And then later they came back and wrote down the accounts of yeah. the and all from their own right. perspective for their own audience. So all of that had to be brought back to their memory. I mean, obviously you would remember a lot of things mm-hmm. really vividly, but Holy Spirit reminded them of everything yeah. he wanted them to capture that's a really good point. That we're actually that anticipates where we're going now, which is, it's really helpful, even from an apologetic and reliability of scripture standpoint, to go out. It's really good that the Holy Spirit was involved in, in the writing, the human writing of these words, because we might have questions about how do they remember these events, or how do they, how do how can we trust the transmission of these events before they were put to writing? Well, thankfully the Holy Spirit was involved in that, um, and and made sure that the words written were God's speech and not just a, a, a fallible human. Uh, mind remembering events that's very good um so we we could also say that the holy spirit is we talked about the holy spirit as the how is his role relate to the the trinity but now let's think about how his role relates to the human author and so we could call him the wind that moves the prophet's mind um and i'm still using this wind or breath metaphor here because so scripture is god breathed um carried by the living and personal breath of god the holy spirit and, and comes to us in a way that follows the order of, of divine processions, as we just saw. So we could say that the Spirit is the divine person in most immediate contact with the human author. Does that make sense? This, in one sense, the Spirit is the one. Like what we see, actually, in Second Peter 1.21, is saying exactly this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So like the Spirit, almost like a boat with sails, like the Spirit carried them along like the wind. And in so doing, they were speaking from God. I think that's a very interesting just way to put those two together. They were speaking God's words because they were being carried along somehow mysteriously in their own mind and in their will. They were writing what they wanted to write, but they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit to write exactly God's words. Um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing that think about the personalities, the experiences um, of the authors, what they were trying to do in their own kind of historical situation. You read different books of the Bible, you see very different styles, theological emphases, and those are real. Those human differences are real, but it's, it's wonderful to also recognize that, that God is speaking in all these things. It's exactly God's word, even while it's no less the word of a very diverse group of human beings. Um, and one thing to bring out there, too, is just that this, we need to emphasize the ordinariness of the Spirit's work. This is something that's come up as a drumbeat a few times, the ordinariness of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Um, in most cases, there, there are some exceptions. In most cases, the inspiration of Scripture was not a miracle. Okay? A miracle is something um, that is a violation of, of, of the norms of nature, God doing something powerful kind of around the norms of nature. Um, that's not what inspiration was. It wasn't against nature. It wasn't God working around nature. It was God working in nature. It was people writing what they wanted to write. Very ordinary. But um, it's God working in that, overseeing that natural process to bring about, bring, making it fruitful, right? It's just we saw in creation and providence. The spirit is working in the natural processes to make them fruitful and bring them to their desired end. And so we might think, again, we might tend to think of the Holy Spirit working as something big and flashy and unusual, and sometimes it is, but it's also no less the Holy Spirit working through ordinary means, just like a, a human apostle writing a letter. Um, so does that, does that make sense, that idea of that ordinariness? Now, if you read the Old Testament, sometimes it is crazy. Like People have these weird visions, Ezekiel's visions and Ezekiel 1. That's not ordinary, uh, but it does, it's not always miraculous. It's not, it doesn't have to be miraculous for the Holy Spirit to reveal these words. Yeah? Yeah. Do, do, does anybody know? Did they write things down? You know, like Isaiah or yeah. Hosea or whatever. Like you know, they have they have generations of time. Yeah. Do do they do they write things down and then go and you know like proclaim a proclamation what they wrote? Yeah. How does the the written book relate to their life preaching ministry? Is that kind of a question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we know a ton about that, um, and it's. I don't think it's beyond, uh, I don't think it's, it's out of bounds for us, given our belief in the inspiration of scripture, even to suppose that a later editor may have had some role in putting that together in its form. But we would say that's still inspired. The final product is inspired. Um, it's not, because there are some views that take that very far, and it's just basically a fictionalized thing hundreds of years later. And um, we wouldn't say that. We would, we would say this is, you know, it's an anthology of certain uh, words that this prophet gave in his time. Um, maybe he did some compilation. Maybe some people soon after did. But these books were received as scripture very early on. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's a short answer at least, yeah. We don't, a lot of it we just don't really know. But that's a good question. Yeah. Um, let's look at the, the Holy Spirit and the way Scripture is. So what we might call the attributes of Scripture. We're not going to look at all the... This isn't a full-blown class in the doctrine of Scripture. But there are certain attributes, things that are true of the Bible that we, we should know and confess. And one thing I want to just draw a couple lines is, given that this is the Spirit speaking, how does that make the Bible what it is? And two lines I want to draw on that are, first of all, inerrancy or truthfulness, and second of all, authority. So inerrancy is, what is inerrancy of Scripture? Anyone just give us a casual definition? That... No mistakes, right. Without error, yes, yeah, it's right there in the Word. It's simply the claim that Scripture is perfect without error, fully truthful. Okay, so the, the, the Scripture is fully truthful, um, now, how can a human document be perfectly truthful, written by a sinful, fallible, limited knowledge human being? How is that possible? The Holy Spirit perfected it through the writing of the, of the human being. That's right. So inspiration, this, remember, the, the word is being breathed out by God, specifically as the Holy Spirit carries along the human prophet or author, that is what safeguards inerrancy, the perfect truthfulness of the scripture, is because, um, again, remembering scripture as God speaking, it is the action of God to think, oh, then it's going to have the character of God. If God is a, if God cannot lie, <laughs> then his words cannot lie, right? There's no difference in saying those two things. To say, oh, he can't lie, but his words can lie. <laughs> like, that would, that's a, a meaningless distinction. If, the, if these are truly God's speech and he can't lie, the Holy Spirit is God and can't lie, then these are true words. They're entirely true. And that's, remember, Jesus said, he called the Holy Spirit there in John 16, the spirit of truth. So that's one thing that's important to know about him. He's, because he's divine, he's fully reliable. Um, so that, any questions about that, how the in, inerrancy or truthfulness of Scripture just stems from it's a pretty short leap to make, right, from the, the inspiration of Scripture, given the character of God. Well, authority, too. So um, how, does, how does the inspiration of Scripture um, lead us to conclude that Scripture is authoritative? Or how does the inspiration of Scripture make Scripture authoritative? There's no higher authority. Then? There's no higher authority then? God. Then God, right. So again... God's words are God in action, right? So God is the sovereign Lord, creator of all. No, no one um, who knows the God of the Bible would doubt the authority of God. Well, God's speech is God acting, God using that authority. And again, you think of any human ruler, to separate the authority of the ruler himself from the, word, the authority of his words is meaningless, is nonsense. Like, oh, that wasn't the king I was violating. It was his command, his edict, <laughs> Well, his edict is him extending his power and do, doing something. And so, um, Scripture being inspired by God gives it its authority. Also, there's also a sense in which inerrancy gives the Bible authority. In, in the sense that, think about an expert in some field who really knows a lot. And is, is uh, people defer to that expert on, on questions like, wow, you, you really, you've mastered this, this one like, little narrow subfield. And if we have any question that comes up, you are the authority. We defer to you. Why? 
because they know a lot, they're right. Basically, they're trustworthy, and so that gives authority. So really, the inerrancy of Scripture is kind of its own source of authority as well, knowing we can rely on this book to, to test all other truth claims. It doesn't mean that there's no truth found outside the Bible. But what it means is this is the one that the, the stands above them all and tests them all. That every other thing that may claim to be true has to pass the test of is it consistent with, it may not be explicitly taught, is it consistent with Scripture? That everything that would claim to be true has to be consistent with Scripture. That's what it means for, for the Bible to be authoritative. Well, part of that is that we can, we can recognize that authority because it's from God and because it's perfect. It's tr- fully truthful. So, God's revelation is this triune action, and the, the Spirit is the one. Uh, we, can, we can say it's appropriate to the Spirit to inspire the Word, and because the Spirit is God, the Word has these divine attributes of perfectly truthful, fully authoritative. Uh, any, any questions or thoughts about that? Um, finally, Jeff, I think, brought up the illumination a while back, and um, we're, we're getting there. So we've talked, all this we've talked about so far is about the giving of Scripture, right? Um, the Holy Spirit as the divine person giving Scripture through human authors. But now let's, let's pivot to thinking about how we receive Scripture. Because the Spirit's revelatory work is not done simply in putting the words on the page. But there's actually more that he does when we interact with, when we hear and read Scripture the Holy Spirit is working too. And this is what's called illumination. Um, illumination is one author said, the work of the Holy Spirit by which he enables the understanding of scripture by enlightening its readers. Why do we need illumination? See where you're going. What? To see where you're going? Yeah. Are we... Are we unintelligent? Are we unable to read? We all, I think we all learned how to read in elementary school. Why do we, what was that? So I heard blinded. What? Our hearts are deceitful. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting question to wrestle with. In what sense does, does, do human beings need help reading the Bible? Um, Christina, do you have something? Yeah, yeah, and you're you're all here echoing scripture, all of you. And actually, I think the scripture you're echoing is what we're going to look at in First Corinthians two. There's a longer discussion back to chapter two, verse ten, um, talking about these things. The Spirit has has disclosed to us things from God. Um, he's talking about the the wisdom of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's pitting these two groups against each other: the natural man. And the spiritual man. Now, we hear that. We think, oh, the spiritual man must be like the super Christian, right? now. he just means the person with the Holy Spirit, the, the Christian, versus the natural man being someone still in their sin nature, the unbeliever. So, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, um, he says this. This is the situation for the lost. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay? What are the problems in that verse? What are the problems that the natural man has with the things of the Spirit of God? Which again, in the context would be the gospel, things that we know are, are written in Scripture for us. What are the problems? There's actually a few problems right there in that verse. What are the, what are the, the barriers for the natural man? So there's a failure of understanding 
What else? There's a disdain. Um, he, uh, they are. Would you say that that would be he doesn't accept them? They're fo- they're folly to him. That would be like he looks at goes. This is foolish. That's disdain. Yeah. So it looks foolish. He's he doesn't understand. What else? There's more. He can't understand. Yep. Um, how about he doesn't accept? There's a failure of acceptance of these things. And then he roots the failure of understanding in spiritual discernment. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of different words, a lot of different senses of how someone receives a text or receives a message that are going wrong here. Um, so there is a failure of understanding. But one thing that reading it in that in the context of the whole verse helps us to see, this is not a claim that unbelievers are less intelligent than believers or that in a kind of a... a a normal, natural sense, they're, they're worse readers. Um, we have, it's surrounded by this language of spiritual discernment, acceptance, and folly, which is an evaluative term. Like, there's a sense of, is this, there's an evaluation when you look at a message going, is that a wise message or a foolish message? That's not an intellectual exercise, is it? That's a more of a affectional and, and a, will, a matter of the will, isn't it? And so that's, um, that's what Paul is saying about the problem. So natural man struggles to understand what the Spirit is saying, not because he's dumb, but because his affections and his will are disordered. And the problem is, the way our minds work is that all is interconnected. Our intellect, our will, and our loves and our desires are all interconnected. So they're not like these isolated boxes where you can say, oh, I love, I love sin, I hate God. But intellectually, I, everything's going to run perfectly. These things all influence each other. And so there is a failure of, of thinking, but it's not a lack of intellect. It's a, it's a spiritual problem. It's a lack of spiritual discernment. He doesn't, doesn't accept. He doesn't love these things. And then verse 16, what about the Christian? The Christian, he says, we have the mind of Christ, which is in this context a way of saying we can spiritually discern because we have the Holy Spirit. That's interesting, the mind of Christ. Uh, he, he says the spiritual person, the person with the spirit, has the mind of Christ. Uh, I think of places where Christ is said to have the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the spirit uh, in the Gospels and in, in like Isaiah 11. And I think Paul is, is kind of thinking of those things, saying we have the mind of Christ, the spiritual mind of Christ. And so we're able to have this heavenly wisdom that the natural man lacks. And so we accept the things from God. We accept the truth as wise and not as folly. Um, and so illumination, that's what illumination is. It's the Holy Spirit overcoming what Matt said, spiritual blindness, to give us the ability to understand and accept and love the things that he, he is saying in Scripture, the things that God has, has said to us. Does that make sense? Any, any questions or comments about that? And, and, and it's kind of... It's a little bit paradoxical because on the one hand, non-believers can understand certain things in Scripture. They can um, sometimes give accurate summaries of what the Bible is saying. They can sometimes give very good insights. Some scholars, non-believers, can give really good insights into certain aspects of Scripture. Um, so it's, it's not a claim that none of that can happen. But um, Scripture is so much more than simply, again, it's not simply a bucket of meaning. <laughs> it's, it's revelation of God who is infinite in depth and, and um, 
beyond our understanding, and he's working. He's showing himself to us, and so there's so much more than just the intellect in play here. And so um, that's why Scripture misfires for the natural man. Uh, and, and, and it's not just the unbeliever versus the believer. We all, I would say as Christians, we all need the Spirit to keep doing this in us. Some of the errors of mind and heart are still possible for us, even in, in Christ. Um, there are, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 5, I preached about this recently, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. We can have impurity in our hearts obstruct our view of God's glory in the scriptures in Christ. So um, the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, that's a great thing to pray for ourselves. Give me the mind of Christ to spiritually discern, to, to love what's good, to treasure and understand the good things you've said to us and accept them. Um, and so it's, it's helpful to just think about Scripture as not simply words, that if we just think of it like any other book, it's really hard to account for how a non-believer couldn't understand it. Um, but if we understand it's, it's, more than just, it's more than just human words, it's a revelation of God himself. There's, there's layers of depth there that that's why there's another gear, so to speak, that the non-believer can't, can't access in terms of understanding um, so I'm kind of moving through these subpoints quickly about you know um, safeguarding understanding, and then the spirit also another thing the spirit does in illumination is he makes. Remember we talked about this the the text having an, an, an intended effect. Well, the spirit is the one who makes that intended effect real in our lives. So on the kind of application side of things, um, again, if if there's a warning in scripture that I read. My coming away from that experience, or if I hear it preached, my coming away from that experience being warned, like subjectively, the warning hit home for me, and I am warned. You know, I've heeded the warning. That's the Spirit doing something in me through the text on an application level, um, ordering my faith, hope, and love. And I, I get that from that. Those three virtues are triad you see a lot of places in the New Testament. In First Thessalonians 1, 3 to 5, Paul is, is saying he's calling out the faith, hope, and love of the Thessalonians and rooting it in the way that they heard the word when he preached to them. So essentially, like, your faith, hope, and love are rooted in the way you received the gospel when I came and preached to you in the Holy Spirit and conviction. And that's a believing response. It's, it's um, Scripture is not just informing our minds, but it, it shapes us. It makes us new in Christ. It converts us. And then it orders our faith, hope, and love toward God. And so, and the Spirit is the one using the Word to do all those things. Um, and it's interesting, in future weeks, we're going to look at a lot of things the Holy Spirit does in salvation. We're kind of looking at it today from the lens of what does Scripture do? Then in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at what happens when we get saved? You know, what happens when we hear the gospel and we uh, go from darkness to light? Well, all those things that are happening, the Spirit is doing through Scripture. So we're kind of hitting on the same things from a different angle. When we are convicted of sin through scripture the holy spirit will be doing that when we uh, repent we're brought to repentance because of the words of scripture the holy spirit is doing that in us so and so on regeneration faith all these things so it's it it's intertwined and you can't pull apart is the word doing these things in us is the holy spirit doing these things in us the answer is yes The, the the holy spirit is speaking in the word and doing these things with the word of god in us so far, so good. Any questions about that? How the Spirit applies the words of Scripture in our lives?
With the remaining couple minutes, I want to open a big can of <laughs> controversy and confusion. No, um, what about subjective guidance? What about God told me? Um, this is a way that you hear a lot of uh, Christians talk, maybe some of us talk that way about our relationship with God and this idea that the Holy Spirit is telling us things throughout our day. I just heard an ad. I was listening to a podcast and I heard an ad for another podcast saying, do you struggle to hear the voice of Jesus and to know what's the voice of Jesus versus your own voice in your head? You know, and there's a whole podcast trying to help you disentangle those things. Um, is that what we should be led to expect by these things? If the Holy Spirit is revealing in Scripture and the Holy Spirit is the one working in us to hear and receive Scripture, would we also expect the Holy Spirit to be revealing things to us directly to our minds and hearts? And so that we can say, the Holy Spirit said X, Y, or Z to me. And, he, and I'm, I'm just going to bracket out right now. We're not talking about prophecy. That, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts later. So we're not talking about the, the actual gift of prophecy. Uh, but just more than mundane, like the Holy Spirit told me to, you know, to whatever. It could be things more spiritual in nature. It could be things more like, sometimes it's very pedantic things. Like he told me to pick vanilla ice cream and not strawberry and stuff like that. What, what, what's a, what about the validity? What do you, do you all think about that? Let's let's not talk about strawberry ice cream. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit told me I, I need to go to a quipping hour. What do you think? I didn't want to go. I want to sleep in, and then the Holy Spirit it hit me. I, he said, "You gotta go." Yes. Okay. Okay. So the Bible talks about the importance of gathering. Yeah. So those are two very helpful pieces. Uh, do you hear what, what together, what yeah, Stacy and Matt's points made? I would, say, I would say there is some truth in what that person is saying in that there is a biblical command priority of gather with the saints. And the spirit is the one who brings, the applic- brings God's word home, makes it live and speak in that person's heart. I would reframe the phrasing of it, though, the, the, the terminology, because I think we do need to be very careful about guarding revelatory language, because what we, wanted to, we do need to deny is that the Holy Spirit is continuing to reveal new things outside of Scripture in the way that he revealed Scripture. That, uh, so I, I, would, I would discourage speaking language, say that God said X to me. But I would, wouldn't deny there's something very true going on in what that person said. There's also a, a layer of disconnect of, application isn't always really clear like a one-to-one so is coming to equipping is not coming to equipping hour equal to abandoning the gathering of the saints like for like hebrews 10 24 25 no it is <laughs> it is not but is coming to equipping hour a way to obey that commandment yes it's a very wise and good way to obey that commandment um but so what i say i would say the holy spirit worked in that person's heart with the truth of god's word brought conviction and brought desire to obey in this particular concrete way. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, Rodney, do you have a thought? I think the key is fallibility. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the way people speak kind of blurs the line of fallibility because what the, what the Bible says and what the Spirit says is infallible. Mm-hmm. My impression or uh, interpretation of what the Bible says or the Spirit is telling me is fallible. Yeah. And if I say God told me to do X... There's a, there's a level of fallibility in there that's not implied by yes. God says X. There is a, there is, there is a claim to authoritativeness 
that is inappropriate for that. Exactly. So, so maybe he's telling me that maybe it's just what I ate yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think even you see places in Acts where it's like it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us uh, to, to give you these. I mean, I think there's, I think it would be humble and good to recognize, um, I, I like even said, it seemed like the Holy Spirit was leading me to do X. Or I think the Holy Spirit gave me this, this thought or idea if it's rooted in the teaching of scripture. But there, ha, there, there needs to be a disconnect of this is not thus says the Lord in the same ironclad authoritative inerrant way that the text of scripture is. But he is applying it. It's just we need to be more self-suspicious about am I, am I discerning that correctly? Which maybe what that podcast is about. I don't know. <laughs> I was a little, I was the way the the words they were using. I was like, I don't like this. But yeah, there is discernment needed in going. Is the spirit actually leading? Is this really the spirit leading me from scripture? Yeah, Maggie. Do you think um, like the Holy Spirit convicted me that's on me convict me to do this. Part of the problem is yeah, I mean this gets tricky I guess um, that that conviction is not as as con- it's an action through words but it's not as concrete and testable as the as words themselves. So I guess part of what I would get is like well am I claiming that every word I prayed was given to me by the Holy Spirit or with the idea of doing the action um yeah, I yeah. Okay, so wisdom call. I, I I but I do think at the end of the day, the point Rodney made is good. If we need to recognize that our application, even spirit prompted application of scripture, even truly spirit prompted application, is prone to us distorting it, and and somehow we we it's all mixed in with sometimes our sin and our limited perception and things like that. So I wouldn't stand on that with the same level of conviction as I would what scripture itself is actually saying. Yeah. Uh, we. I'm so sorry. We were over over time. You can come at me with your uh, <laughs> with your uh, your objection. No, I know y'all probably just good points and questions that would be great to hear. But we need to we need to close things. So thank you all for your participation. God, we thank you for these living words that you speak to us by your Spirit. Words that reveal the way of salvation in Christ and the way we can know you as our covenant God. We pray we would treasure these words all the more and let them work and live in us by your spirit even more and respond to them in every way that you intend uh, for the glory of your name and our joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.